Since the COVID-19 lockdown, we've been conducting all the interviews over Zoom from home. You might have noticed we've had some issues with the Wi-Fi. We finally just had it fixed. So from now on, there should be no more glitches. Thanks for bearing with us. And if you're enjoying the show and you have time, please give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people discover us. Or share a link to the show with a friend or friends that might like it. We really appreciate it. Okay, on to this week's episode. And so there was this whole idea of drug addiction and alcohol was how do I keep myself up? How do I keep my dark, you know, skeletons away? How do I cope through this pressure? And the reality of it is, is that when you're working 75, 80 hours in a very loud, people are yelling, they're screaming, you know, five or six hours prepping food, three hours basically under pressure. Now it's four o'clock. And you you should have a break, but you open at six and you've run out of all these things that you've prepped. And if you don't get ready for dinner, you're going to be in trouble. So you basically don't have a break. Now you're you're 12 hours in at seven o'clock, the pressure builds again, and you've got another three or four hour window of pressure and yelling and screaming. And then you have to basically clean everything, write your prep lists, pack down, wash the kitchen. It's now 12.30 at night. You know, there was no Uber. And a lot of those places in those days, trains stopped at midnight. So you would bike at home, motorbike at car if you had the luxury of that. Now it's 1.30 in the morning. So now you stay up for at least an hour or a bit longer. And, you know, people take drugs and drink and try to process what they've done. Robert Marchetti is an Australian-born celebrity chef and now New York-based restaurateur and co-founder of Grand Tivoli and Pepe Cellar. As founder and CEO of Marchetti Co., his hospitality lifestyle company, he delivers creative solutions that include interior design, architectural, food and beverage, concept creation and design. In part one of this wide-ranging discussion, Robert tells the story of his upbringing in Australia, the backstory to his Italian father and German mother and how they arrived in Australia. How his youthful persistence led him to his first experience of the restaurant industry, age 13, being hired at 15 by his older brother in his iconic Queensland Italian restaurant and honing his skills on his journey through the dysfunctional, high-pressured restaurant kitchen environments of the 80s and 90s and navigating a path through the culture of abuse and staff reliance on drugs and alcohol Robert also discusses how he developed his leadership style, being self-taught and the importance of lifelong learning. In part two, Robert discusses his vision for his Manhattan restaurant, Grand Tivoli, and reflects on the economic impact of COVID-19 on New York's restaurants and bars, the business environment, supporting his staff, and how, as humans, we can use this period of time to grow stronger and sharpen our tools. He discusses why vulnerability is a strength and how he has learned to thrive through failure and his perspective on organic food and the industrial food supply chain. I hope you enjoy the honesty, passion, integrity, and curiosity of Robert Marchetti. Let's jump in. So we love to understand about upbringing and the impact of parental guidance and influence and other influences as you were growing up. So before we dive into discussing your life as a restaurateur, a chef, a designer, we'd like to understand more about your childhood. Now, am I right in saying that you grew up in Melbourne? Yes, I was yes. born in Melbourne, actually. Yeah, okay. So you're you're a, an Italian restaurateur father from a, a region of Italy, I believe. Brother. Is called, is not, brother. Oh, oh, brother. 
Oh, right. Okay. So this is where my research fell down. I thought your father was a restaurateur. So it was your brother. That's, um, that's commonly, um, that's not your fault. There's a lot of people write that. Uh, my brother is 20 years older than me and he was the restaurateur to begin uh, with. And that's kind of where I got a lot of my inspiration for being a restaurateur. Okay, then. Right. So that clears that one up. So my father was from Lettermarke in Italy and my mother was from Bavaria, uh, German. So I kind of you know, like I have that <laughs> passionate side, food side is Italian and business side is German. And I always laugh and say, thank God it's not the other way around. <laughs> well, I, I wonder, I wonder what happens when the, they, they meet up at the World Cup. Yeah, exactly. Well, well you know, I win both ways. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Here on this uh, channel. So please, no offenses, okay? No problems. Bettina's from nor- north of Italy. From Italy. Oh, well, you know, I, I was really happy when Schumacher was driving for a Ferrari. So, it, it, you know, Ralph was yeah. still, but uh, Michael was. So I was winning either way. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to us about growing up and the, your parental support and the impact that your parents had and, and what roles both of them played, mother and father. Really interesting. Um, my parents came out of obviously World War Two. My brother is actually my half-brother. So uh, my parents... My father um, uh, met my mother in Germany and my mother was working at a place called Hotel Italia in Germany. And uh, she was a set designer and also working behind the bar in this, in this bar. And uh, my dad, apparently, end of the war, he was driving like kind of Jeeps and he was driving two four-star generals back and forth in, you know, the Americans had finally occupied Italy and, you know, resurrecting it. And he was driving them around. And then after the war, he ended up becoming a truck driver for fresh produce between Italy and Germany. And he, every time when he landed in Germany, he kept going back to this bar and hitting on my mum. And it took him like five months to get her out on the date because she kept knocking him back. And, and at that point, my mother had a son, which was my brother. And the father of uh, my brother was actually an American oil dude. And, uh, my mother separated from him when she found out he had an affair and she said, well, I'm just not going to stay with you. And in those days, I guess it was, it was frowned upon to be a single mother at all. And for my father being coming from a Catholic family, trying to, to wed and date a German single mother with a child, <laughs> it's like, you know, like now you just go, what's the big deal? But you've got to think about the era that that was. Yeah. And so they fell in love. Eventually my mum said yes. And they fell in love, and uh, then my father, of course, brought them to, uh, brought you know my brother and, and the mother to meet his side of the family, and they kind of didn't accept her. They were like, she's not, you know, she's Cath- she's not necessarily Catholic. She's German. She's got a son. You should marry your own kind. Da 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 da. And my bro- my father at that point was uh, was doing a, a Parmesan exporting business or something like that. And he just turned around and then said, well, to the family, well, if you don't accept her, you don't accept me. I'm in love with her. She's going to be my wife, so you can go and whatever. So he, um, he decided to pack everything up. And after the war, they had opened America, Canada up for immigration. And my father really wanted to come to New York, ironically. Ellis Island was the processing place. And uh, New York filled up really quickly. And they, they, knocked, and they, they accepted and they got all their paperwork and they were packed and ready to go. And I think they were a couple of weeks out from getting on the ship to come here and they were told it was full and they just couldn't accept any more immigrants. So then my father was like, well, look, I love Canada. That makes sense. You know, that seems like a really good country. So they got accepted for that. And then the same thing happened again to them and they were told, look, it's full. And so my father, you know, uh, was working in, at that point, half his friends were in, in Argentina and they were working between Argentina and Italy, exporting cheese and, you know, trans, transport and stuff like that. 
And the immigration came up to them and said, well, there's two choices. You've got South Africa or you've got Australia. And my dad, you know, when half, when half his uh, uh, friends were from all over the world, said there is no way in the world that I'm going to an apartheid country. He said, this just never going to happen. He goes, I just can't believe in that. So he said, what's this Australia business? And had a look at it, thought it was a really good idea. They spent weeks on the ship, I think like 10 weeks or eight weeks on the ship, something crazy. My mum was pregnant at that point with my sister and uh, really sick the whole way because she also got seasick. And they eventually arrived in a place called Bonagilla in Australia, which is, you know, almost central Australia. And it was a processing plant, uh, a place for immigrants and not like any kind of weird stuff, just like a village. And they were there and they were basically teaching them English and, you know, how to populate in the country. But my parents had already spoken a few languages already. So they were certainly not educated in the, in the high echelons, but they spoke a bunch of languages. They were 12 weeks in the desert and my dad just like said, I just can't stay here anymore. I cannot eat any more mutton. I don't know what these people do here to eat, but we're getting out of here. And so he took a, he, he had an Italian friend with him and a few others. And one particular guy that he met said, can I come along? He spoke no English. And my father was like, you should probably stay here and learn how to speak the language if you're going to live here. No, 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 I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out. So they sort of left. They ended up in Melbourne. They ended up in a place called Daninong. And uh, Daninong is in the mountain ranges of Victoria. Uh, Melbourne is the uh, capital city of Victoria. And it's a really beautiful, rugged country. And, and it became a great metropolis for Greek and Italian immigrants because they kind of felt like they could grow gardens there. You know, houses were, you know, of a very, you know, houses weren't huge, but the little, you know, everybody had a front and backyard. So the immigrants kind of went there anyway. So, so then I was born there. My parents uh, and, and as a family, we went back to Italy and Germany twice. My mother had really uh, missed her family and missed the country. And then they came back to Australia realizing there was nothing for them in Germany and Italy. So I was quite young then. The first time was about five. The second time was about six or seven. And then eventually we settled back into Melbourne. And then at some point, my, my mother and father wanted to be somewhere warm and my father Le Marque is kind of north of, of, you know, you've got Tuscany and it's kind of north of Tuscany. And my father decided that he wanted to live somewhere, you know, where it was warmer and by the ocean. And they chose to move to Queensland, um, the top part of Australia, um, a place called Cairns, which, yeah. you know, even now is, 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 is kind of like a food desert. And, and if you can imagine in those days, so they got up there, they loved it. Of course, they couldn't go there by plane because they didn't have the money. So they just packed the car up, sold the house, and we all moved up there. And we went from this really beautiful house to not being able to find a place to live and living in, a, in, in America, you call them trailers there, a caravan. But we lived in this big trailer with a marquee and a garden and everything. And eventually, six or seven years went by, and I was still in this kind of caravan, 12, 13 years old. And it was a food desert up there. So my parents were kind of shocked at how bad the diets were. You know, my father used to have to go to the, to the pharmacy to buy olive oil because there was no such thing. And, you know, for olive oil was uh, a medicinal uh, liquid uh -huh. in a pharmacy for ointments, you know, joints and stuff. So they, they kind of got a bit of a shock with that. So there I was till I was 13 and uh, I was doing odd jobs, believe it or not, between 12 and 13. I, got, I, I begged. I had this moment with my father where we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of love and we had a lot of food and we had clothes. So that mm -hmm. for us, that was everything, right? So there was no... You know, I was on the street begging for food or anything dramatic, but we were living in a trailer. We didn't have the money. It was mm. week to week kind of stuff. 
And I remember I said something one day. There was a computer that came out called the Commodore 64. Oh, yes. I know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember, I remember it came that. out and it was, it was I, think, I think it was just two balls, two dots, and it was tennis. And it was like uh-huh, high yeah. tech then. And, yeah. and uh, I remember seeing one of my friends had it. And I said to my father, geez, I really love one of those. And he looked at me sarcastically. You know, I'm 12 years old, 13. And he goes, why don't you get a job? <laughs> and then you can get <laughs> one. And then I was like really annoyed at him. So I got on my bike. And I knew my brother had a restaurant and I got on my bike and one of the basic chores of the house was we always washed up if my mum cooked. And uh, I went down this place. Yeah, right. Well, it's funny in an Italian household because chores aren't a big, they're an American, a Western sort of thing, Australian thing. But for Italians, you like your mum always likes, always on in Italian households, Italian households, you know, chores are are funny because, uh, you know, Dad never let anybody water the garden or cut the grass. That was his domain. It was like his castle. And mum would never let you cook. And she always had this thing about making all your beds and stuff. So I, I guess in one way, our chores were really different than most Western kids. Long story short, I went down this place, uh, which was an esplanade by the water. And this was the, at that point in, in Cairns, this was where all the restaurants were. And there, and there was tons of them. And I remember like, you know, sort of dorky 13-year-old kid riding his bike down the esplanade. And I went to restaurant to restaurant asking for a job. And at about the fourth or fifth restaurant, I realized I had no skill. They kept telling me to go away. And then somebody said to me, you should just learn to wash dishes and go and wash dishes for somebody. I think it was like the fourth or fifth restaurant. And I said, what about here? And they said, no. And so I got to, I think, maybe a dozen places I got knocked back from. And eventually I kind of got the balls to stand up and go, no, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Somehow in my little brain, I thought that would work. And I went to one place and I was, it was, I think it was called the aquarium or something. And I walked in there and I walked up to the reception desk proudly. And I said, I'd like to speak to the executive chef, you know, no appointment. No. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, young man, we don't. And I just kept stopping her and saying, no, 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 I want to speak to the executive chef. She said, young man, you can't. And I stepped stopping her and she stood there and folded her arms and looked at me and said, are you done? And I said, I am. She said, this is a motel. We don't have a restaurant. We don't have an executive chef. Now go away. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I left, went to one more restaurant and it was five o'clock. And at that point, I'd been riding around since 10 in the morning. And I raced a few bikes when I was younger. And I got to this one restaurant, five o'clock was a very early time to eat. And it was full. And there were people sitting there and it was called Bill's, I think Barnacle Bill's, something like that. And it was like the seafood restaurant. And I walked around the front. And they told me, look, go around the back and talk to somebody about there. So I went out the back, knocked on the door, you know, it took me a while. An old guy came out, said, what do you want? And I said, oh, I'm looking to wash dishes. And he said, have you ever done it before? And I said, no. And I said, but I'll do anything. And I care about the money. I just want a job. And he just said, stay here. So I sat there on a milk crate for like an hour. Didn't, you know, know what was going on. And then a, a sort of Santa Claus looking guy came out and he goes, who are you? And he, I don't know if he came out. I'm not even sure to this day if he came out for me or he just came out to have a cigarette. And I go, I'm Robert. And he goes, well, I'm Bill. And I go, great, nice to meet you. And he goes, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I want a job. And he goes, what do you do? And I go, I don't do anything, but I'll do anything. And he kind of, he was Italian, Australian, and just by luck. And he just turned around to me and said, well, if you want to work, you might as well start now and see what you do tonight. And then we'll talk about it afterwards. So went in the kitchen, the guy gave me an apron and gloves. And, you know, they gave me these ridiculous large clamshell uh, that were like these these sea clams you know they get really big the ones you see in the movies and inside those they used to put cheesy seafood mornay and all the cheese would burn on all sides and it was pretty disgusting and i'd scrub them and whatever i got to the end of the night and he looked at me and he said marchetti and i said yes that's my last name and he said ah italian 
He go, and then he went about his son, you know, da da da. And he kept going on about his son was a bit of an idiot, spoiled, and didn't really want to work, and blah blah blah. So he kind of got a kindling to me. He gave me fifty dollars, and in those days there were no hundred dollar notes. Fifty dollars, and I looked at it and I was like, what? And he goes, this isn't for tonight. This is this is going to be for the next four nights. But I'm giving you this in advance to let you know that you've got a job and encourage you to make sure you come back. But don't, you know, not come back. So at that point, I got home late. I got a lot of trouble. And not coming home for dinner is is like murder. You know, there's a lot of things you can get away with. And my parents, my parents were very modern thinkers. I could have come home and told them a lot of things, but not coming home for dinner was a big drama. So eventually I got home and it was like 10 o'clock and, you know, I rode home and, you know, I got told off and then I pulled the $50 out. And my dad and mum were just like, and they, they knew, I mean, I was naughty, but they knew I wasn't like a crook. And they kind of looked at me and my dad said, oh my God, really? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, what time are you going to finish? You still got school. And I'm like, look, he said I can work from four till nine o'clock straight after school, da, da, da. So my dad was just so proud that I left and did that, that he just said, right, okay, well, you walk there because it was near my school. He goes, I'll pick you up every night at nine o'clock. So he would finish his shift, go home, have dinner, come get me. And that was my first restaurant job. Wow. And then subsequently, the guy, the guy had uh, another bunch of restaurants and illegally you know, put me behind the bar making drinks and stuff like that in those days. And I found out many years ago, he's passed away now, I found out many years later that he was actually one of the local hood guys, not as dramatic out of Brooklyn and Queens or anything like that, <laughs> but he was a local hood guy and he ran all the prostitution and a whole bunch of stuff, but he still ran his restaurant. He just liked me and I think his son was a bit of an idiot, so he kind of adopted me in that way. So that was kind of how I got into restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's a, I mean, fascinating, fascinating story. So while you were doing that, your brother was also building his restaurant business in parallel to you doing this. So your brother must have been one, he must have been quite impressed with you as well. My brother wasn't impressed with me at all because he was in the other part of the country. He was in Melbourne and I was this goofy kid at 13 in Queensland. And, uh, and then one day I just said, look, I joined a culinary school on my own and I first job out of the culinary school, they, they said, we've got a job in a private hospital. And uh, ironically, to this day, I have fond memories of it because it was the first time that I'd experienced a real kitchen of such size. There was a pastry kitchen and there was this. It was a very different, you know, obviously very different hospitals, you know, now, but it was a traditional executive kitchen like a hotel. So there was a pastry kitchen and meat, a fish, blah, blah, blah. So I learned how to cook 150 omelets in 45 minutes. I learned how to do a whole bunch of stuff. And I kind of got to 14 and a half, 15. I hated school. I kind of, I felt like, felt like everybody was really immature. And I was like, you know, you know, we'd do culinary classes in school and we'd be cooking basic things like poached eggs. And I'm like, look, I can make five different types of frittatas. What am I doing here? I thought I was a little bit, little bit cheeky. And then my brother and I talked on the phone and I begged him to let me come down and start my apprenticeship in his restaurant. And my mom and dad were like, Ugh. my mom wasn't crash hot on it. My dad just went, look, this, he, if, he, if he stays in school and doesn't go and do this, I'm either going to make him join the, the Navy or but he's going to get in too much trouble up here because you know he needs to be busy. So I got on a bus. So this is for age 15, 16? Yeah, 15, wow. yeah. yeah. So I got on a bus and uh, took a bus from Queensland to Can- to Melbourne, which felt like the longest trip of my life. I think it was like eight days on the road and uh, started my apprenticeship with my brother. And, you know, it was like, 
you know, it was a weird experience. He was he was becoming a culinary icon. He was considered the best Italian chef in the country. It was considered the best Italian restaurant in the country at that point. He was awarded that a bunch of times throughout the time I was there. And I was pushed really hard in that kitchen because I was related. So there was no favoritism. And it was very clear that I would take the heat for anything that would happen because, you know, if somebody was upset at him, his wife at that point was running the front of house and all that kind of stuff. But it was, a, it was an interesting era because it was the era of really high alcohol drugs. Kitchens were like, you know, you know, battle zones. But they weren't... The interesting thing about the kitchens I worked in were never completely violent. Not, not my brother's kitchen, but they were full of drugs and, you know, and, and really hard drugs. Like people were functioning heroin addicts or drunks or whatever. And so you're this 15-year-old kid that really hasn't done anything. I think I had at that point smoked half a cigarette and threw up. And I managed to navigate my entire time through all the kitchens without experimenting with a lot of that stuff as well. My brain just didn't get it. I mean, you know, I thought being sophisticated was having a gin and tonic at that point. You know, I, I heard the word at 16, 17, Tanqueray, and I, that was what I stuck with. And, you know, my biggest vice was a couple of gin and tonics. But it was a, you know, as I progressed out of that kitchen into other kitchens, I went to, to real two and three star restaurants that's when I started seeing a dark side to the restaurant industry that I didn't like, you know, it was abusive and, and that kind of stuff. And I managed to always promise myself that I would never treat anybody like that if I ever uh, right. ran my own businesses. Did your brother, what, did he become a mentor to you? Was he the one that was basically teaching you to cook and to develop your, your skills as a chef? Or was that through other experiences in other restaurants? All. All of the above. So uh, my mother about, you know, how to make something out of nothing, which was always amazing, like a piece of cheese and a loaf of bread and a, and a sausage. And all of a sudden there's a three-course meal. I was very good with playing with eggs, how to stretch it, especially when you're on. My first salary a week was $87 a week. Uh, now I sound like I'm 100. Uh, $87 a week. So you have to figure out how to pay rent and live off that. And I always lived week by week with that point and learned that eggs were the cheapest form of food. So I'd always have eggs and bread at home and they were filling. Uh, my brother was, he, he taught me about understanding my palate uh, and trusting my instincts. He was pretty hard on me because he didn't want to look like he was giving me an easy ride. And then I went to a couple of people after that, a French restaurant, and it was considered the best French restaurant in Australia. And it was two stars. There were only ever two stars at that point. We call them hats in Australia, but they were two stars. And that was a bistro and a restaurant. And I was warned never to go there. And uh, it was an experience. And I was the longest. When I left 16 months later, I was the second longest serving staff member that had been there at that point. Because it was just a churn and burn. He was aggressive, violent, loud plate throwing kind of person. So I didn't enjoy cooking like that. I realized that they made food. They made you that experience after my brothers. My brothers was kind of like the Wild West where we were a really high-end restaurant in the front. And like when I say fine dining, I don't know if that word doesn't, you know, it was very silver service, bow ties, but it was like I guess maybe Le Cirque, when it, you know, the, the, the founder just passed away, it was like Le Cirque in its heyday. It was super fun. There was a who's who and whatever. And then I went to this very stiff French restaurant where everything was stiff and everybody was taking themselves way too seriously and cooking wasn't fun anymore. Cooking was yelling, fear-based, 
And I'd managed to figure out a relation. My father had always said, never let anybody touch you or abuse you. And I'd made it very clear to the owner at that point. He nearly fired me one day for saying it to him. And he, when he was interviewing me, and I said, I just don't want anybody to get physical with me or, or, you know, or get abusive with me. And he said, you know, what the fuck does that mean? And blah, 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 blah. And I just went, well, look, that's just not, not who I am. From that moment, I did not get pressured, but I never got bullied. But he was a real bully. And I, I remember watching, I uh, couldn't even go into the stories, but I can remember watching all kinds of stuff in that kitchen thinking, I'll never do that and I'll never be that person. And if I ever lose my top, and I, you know, I did a few times, I would apologize if I felt I was out of line. So that was a real lesson in that sucked the life out of them. You know, there's, I call it the marrow out of the bone for passion. And that's mm-hmm. when I left and I was working for a, a, a chef that's still alive now. Australian chef that was renowned for his kind of really cool fish and chip cafes and buzzy places and he opened a Mediterranean restaurant and I worked for him for a while and had a lot of fun and cooked completely different food again. A couple of questions. I'm, yep. I love cooking. <laughs> I adore it and I've spent more time. Of- You've got David Thompson's book right behind you, haven't you? This one here? No, that's a Thai food one. Is, Is that, that? Yeah, that's Is David the pink yeah, one. Yeah, David Thompson. Thompson. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's a friend of mine. I know that he won. He won a cover just for that for that a cover award for that book. It's fantastic. So uh, I've used it a lot, but I'd never realised who the who the actual who David Thompson was. Yeah, I mean, I, so I, and I've loved watching. I and mean, in the UK, before I moved here ten years ago, you were always surrounded by celebrity chef shows, and whether it be Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay, that you know you. It's immersed in every Saturday morning, every Sunday morning, there's, there's cooking shows. But I've never understood the culture of where the drug taking, the addiction, the violence comes from. Why at that time was it so intense? And it wasn't just obviously Australia. I mean, this is as true in the UK as it was probably in America. Uh, so there's a, there's a handful of answers that aren't sexy. Um, people mm-hmm. like to make them sexy, like rock and roll. And I know there's been books and stuff that trying to make this stuff out to be great but reality of it is it comes from dysfunctionality it comes from ridiculous amounts of hours ridiculous amounts of heat and pressure so you can imagine an average day of getting in at eight o'clock in the morning and then by the time you actually take your chef's jacket off it's probably 1 a.m and we Mm -hmm. used to work six days a week doing that and maybe have a little break in the afternoon for 35 45 minutes sometimes never and so you know Addictive personalities, dysfunctionality, I can fit in with these people. They're all dysfunctional. We're a dysfunctional family. Acceptance, you know, like a lot of people in those days, if somebody was a homosexual, they wouldn't be, or they'll get, you know, they, they couldn't announce that in the kitchen, uh, sorry, in business, but in a kitchen, you were kind of accepted. So it was, it was like, you know, a bunch of, one of my, who was actually, I was talking to just only a, like a day ago, Henry, he was the executive chef of my brother's restaurant at that point. And for, for the entire time Henry was there, I worked with him for the year and a half. I didn't know he was gay and I wouldn't have cared and neither would have my brother, but it just wasn't something that, you know, you could, you could bring out. And so there was this whole idea of years later with drug addiction and alcohol was how do I keep myself up? How do I keep my dark, you know, skeletons away? How do I, how do I cope through this pressure? And the reality of it is, is that when you work in 75, 80 hours in a very loud, people are yelling, they're screaming, you know, the dockets are being fired and you're calling out orders. And then all of a sudden you have this burst of energy for three hours and you're three hours, you, you, you spent, you know, five or six hours prepping food, three hours basically under pressure. Now it's four o'clock and you, you should have a break, but you open at six 
and you've run out of all these things that you've prepped. And if you don't get ready for dinner, you're going to be in trouble. So you basically don't have a break. Now you're you're twelve, you know, you're twelve hours in at seven o'clock. The pressure builds again, and you've got another three or four hour window of pressure and yelling and screaming. And then you have to basically clean everything, write your prep lists, preparation lists, pack down, wash the kitchen. You know, that were days before. You know, my guys and some of the places I look after now, they have cleaners and stuff like that. Wash the kitchen. It's now twelve thirty at night. You know, there was no Uber. <laughs> in those days and a lot of those places in those days trains stopped at midnight so you would bike at home motorbike it you know car if you had luck the luxury of that now it's 1 30 in the morning nobody goes it's like if you finish at six o'clock or five o'clock at work you don't go home and go to bed so you're not in bed by 6 30 so when you come home at 1 30 that's your 6 30 so now you stay up for at least an hour or a bit longer and you know people take drugs and drink and try to process what they've done and then your alarm goes off at 7 seven thirty, and here we go again oh the sleep deprivation yeah the pressure must just build and build yeah it took me it took me many years to find out that i suffered incredible amounts of physical and mental trauma through working like that but i, I always acknowledged that i was one of the lucky ones and i was never really getting into drugs and you know, depending on what you call drugs, because caffeine or heroin or coffee, yeah. or how bad are they? You know, they're all kind of drugs. But never getting anything, something disruptive. You know, you could tell the difference in people's behavior. So the people that cocaine wasn't very big because A, it was expensive and B, you know, you'd burn through it pretty quickly. So heroin was a thing. I, I think ecstasy just was invented in those days and, uh, you know, dope. And and you so you would sit there and you could tell the difference in who was taking what. So heroin addicts, weren't what people think they were. They weren't skinny, undernourished, and they're about to steal your bag. They were functioning people. You know, I worked with a, a heroin addict executive chef in an award-winning restaurant that in the 14 or 15 months I was there, OD'd at home twice and was brought back to life and was still the executive chef. But he would come in and he would be completely functional. It wouldn't be track marks or dry lips or any of that stuff. He was like, I need three hits of my heroin every day and I go and do my thing. So you would understand how they were and you would go, okay, I understand that disease. Then you would see somebody that was doing speed or something, they were nuts because they were inconsistent, they were late, they were erratic, they'd run out of puff really quickly, ang- aggravated. And then you would just have the ones that I liked working with was with the people that used to smoke masses and mouths, you know, they'd have a bong every <laughs> night, probably <laughs> one before they came in and everything was, nothing was a problem. They'd eat all their mise en place, their preparation. They were super chilled. And it's just like, chill out, man. And you're like, actually, we're really busy. You need to move your ass. <laughs> That's brilliant. Robert, it sounds like that is a, a brilliant sitcom or a comedy movie <laughs> waiting to be written about the combination of characters. They've tried it. They've tried it a few times. It's really kind of interesting because it, it is really a band of rebels because nobody, everybody's got their thing going on and, you know, I had ended up one at one point with like 500 staff and a bunch of restaurants and, you know, there was never a day where there wasn't somebody doing something. I've seen every form of excuse and every form of theft and every form of dysfunctionality and drama you could possibly imagine and it's very hard to shock me now. Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential? Mm-hmm. The reality then of... Uh- yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I was cooking in his era. We're kind of we're almost the same age. So it is... 
And I don't. I remember reading that and thinking, Jesus, you know, he left out a lot because <laughs> he was probably trying to be as tame as he could. But yeah, pretty much like that. Now, now it's definitely changed a lot, and I actually think change for the better. I don't actually think change for the worse. I've read that you saying in the past that that great food comes from chefs that remain true true to their family roots. Mm-hmm. Can you just maybe expand on that? I'm intrigued. I mean, obviously you're very focused on Italian, but why is that? Why is that important? Well, I, I, you know, it's kind of interesting. If you look some, at some classic dishes, right? So let, let's just say Dacola Roms and Ossobucola Milanese. Somebody invented that. In order to have one dish that outlasts your lifetime, you're the 1% of the 1%. Like very few people, they, every chef's going to say, oh, but I've got this dish and everybody talks about it. But I mean a dish that outlasts your lifetime, like doesn't even have your name recognized and it is just something that go, oh, this is the new era of whatever. So those dishes usually come from people that stay very close to their family roots and understand the thinking and the romance and the storytelling behind um, that dish. And I'm very much an authentic integrity person when it comes to product. So I like to know that you know, I'm looking over on my counter at the moment. I've got a whole rabbit there because I'm having the first time I'm having my business partner who had COVID uh, for three weeks come over tonight and he's he's healthy now and I'm going to cook him rabbit cacciatore. And I've been reading some of my old books and looking about the history of cacciatore, which means hunter and, you know, why did they use rabbit and what did the hunters do and how do I replicate a cast iron pan over the fire and, you know, was it bacon or was it pancetta? So, I, you know, for me... I'm very comfortable in my genre. That doesn't mean I can't cook a Thai dish, but it doesn't mean I'm good at cooking a Thai dish. You know, I love uh, David Thompson's book behind you. He's one of the best Thai chefs in the world. He's actually Australian. And he is somebody that cooks incredible Thai food and is not authentically um, Thai, but he spent his whole life between Sydney and Thailand. He actually lives now in one of the royal um, houses of Thailand because he's considered a national treasure. National treasure. He's an Australian and, and, and so, but he's really, you know, he dug through his roots really deep and realized that part of where he was from wasn't great food. So he spent a lifetime trying to circumvent that. But I always find, even with people like, you know, that have, they've got a Korean background and they might cook modern food, but they always have a Korean flavor inside their food. They understand the spicy elements or, you know, it's Thai, sweet, sour, salty and, and hot. And for Italian, for me, like, Sure, I can cook some German dishes, but actually my father never loved German food because he felt it was really heavy. He came from the Mediterranean side, the Adriatic coast, so he loved Italian food. So my mother, if she was ever going to cook German food for my sister who loved it and myself, she would make an Italian meal for him. And he wasn't precious. He just didn't want to eat that stuff. He was just, he had zero interest in sauerkraut and roast pork and dumplings and, and you know he would take a piece of fish and fresh vegetables any day of the week. So I've always found that when I get cooks, it's kind of interesting because you get them to cook what you want on your menu and they'll, you know, take my instructions. But then I'll say to them, so what do you eat at home? And they'll go, I do this incredible, you know, South Korean dish called, you know, bibimap or whatever. And can you make it for me? And I eat it and I go, Jesus, you know, this person struggled cooking a really basic Italian thing. But then all of a sudden there's this really technical dish here that has all the elements and flavors. Look how amazing they are at it because they get it. They've, they've grown up with it. There's somebody said, it's like congee. Congee is like tripe. I always look at it like this. Like I like tripe. You either like it or you hate it. Congee is exactly the same. 
unless you've brought, brought up with it, it's very few people sit and go, I'm really dying for a congee on a Friday morning for <laughs> breakfast, unless you've been brought up with it. And I love congee, but I'm, you know, I've accustomed myself to it. So, it, you know, I find with food, there, there needs to be some understanding of history of food and why people did things and slowing down as well and understanding what you're actually cooking. It's not all this 15-minute food sort of business, and, mm-hmm. which I'll, that's another story that I'll have a, about that. Okay. I did, did want to ask you about your school, Cairns High School. It had a motto, which, which translates from Latin to, he conquers who conquers himself. And I think it's a sort of a motto around the importance of overcoming weakness and failings and being able to control your emotions. And when you talk about the way that you manage your kitchen, it sounds like that's, that character is, in, is imbued in you. Where does that character come from in terms of the way that you, you manage your, your establishments and your teams? Because a lot of people go to uh, go through coaching, mentoring, and therapy to get to a point where they can manage their emotions and control themselves, and to lead with that type of character that you seem to uh, display. You know, really interesting because there's some still even to this day there's some really high profile chefs out there even in New York that when you have their staff come work for you they say they're horrible to work for, and yet they're there lecturing us on about worlds national issues. And I kind of sit there and I go, I never want to be that person. I want my people to, there'll always be somebody that didn't like you. There'll always be somebody that says you didn't do this, you didn't do that, because you can't work with this many people and not have an impact, whether good or bad or indifferent. But my view is that I'm constantly learning. So I've never felt educated. Remember, I left school when I was 14, 15. So I'm self-taught. You know, the first time I was given a a computer and an assistant. I was 26 years old. I didn't even know how to turn it on. So, I see. so you, you never bought you never bought that Commodore then? Yeah, no, Commodore 64. No, <laughs> yeah. I didn't actually because we couldn't afford it. I think it was like, I still remember it. I think it was like $100 or something ridiculous. But it was once I realized I had it in the grasp of my hand and I had money, I was like, why do I want to waste money on that? I'm a grown up now. I'm 15. It's a really good question. To this day, even through this whole COVID uh, experience, I've had a lot of, I've got three young people that I mentor and I've been giving them a lot of talks and particular things to do throughout the day that help your brain navigate through these uncharted waters. And so I, I really mix it up. So I studied transcendental meditation and graduated from that. I graduated from the Wim Hof um, um, training school. You did I don't know if you know the Iceman. Oh, my goodness, I did. you did it? Oh, wow. And I actually, that's intense. And, and, and you're going to laugh because my I literally am not making this up. My hot water system broke last night and turned into an indoor fountain and I've had the plumber here all morning and he's gone now. He hasn't fixed it yet. And he's like, you're going to have to have a cold shower. I'm really sorry. And I'm like, no worries. Bring it on. And uh, <laughs> bring it on. You know, I had an ice bath last week. So, I, you know, Wim Hof's a big, I'm a big fan of, I met him a couple of times and he graduated from his school in uh, all his classes in Bali, which temperament, I, I suffered very high anxiety from a lot of years and never understood what it was. So I know how to temperament it now. And breathe. And breathe. And I'm a big fan of yoga. And this isn't like some nat, you know, weird world where I wake up every day and I'm doing yoga, transcendental, having an ice bath, and I'm some Iron Man. I'm not, I'm not the rock. But at the same yeah. time, I know how to calibrate myself. I'm like, oh, you're starting to get a little bit anxious. You know, what have you been doing that makes you that way? And then reading, you know, uh, the best book right now to read is is uh, the Surrender Experiment by Michael A. Singer. Oh, so not that one. He he wrote the Untethered Soul. Oh yeah, okay. His yeah. second book, The Surrender Experiment, is such a dichotomy. You know, a dichotomy at the beginning because it gets you so confused that he taught. He starts off with he used to be a yogi and hippie in his first book, and then the second book, The Surrender Experiment, he's sitting on a G five 
on his G5 and you're like, where's this going to go? I don't want another one of these. I made billions and now I'm a monk. You know, I don't want to hear any of that anymore. And it doesn't go that way. It actually goes down the path of you can't control what's happening. And, you know, a lot of times when people write that stuff, they write it from a privileged position and you go, yeah, but you can say that now. Money doesn't mean anything because you've got it or health doesn't mean anything because you have it or whatever. But he writes about his struggles with being out of control of his situation and how he had to deal with it. And with the COVID-19, the word stoicism Mm -hmm. has always resonated with me through these processes because I've been through 9-11, I've been through 2008, nothing's been as weird as this, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world. So I take all that stuff, all that knowledge, and I bring it to work. And I'm known to raise my voice and I'm also known to apologize. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a kitchen environment when you're incredibly passionate about that little tiny little piece of broccoli not being perfect and that perfect piece of fish and ruining somebody's night because it's dry. If you say that you're not emotional, then that doesn't, you either aren't in touch with your emotions or you're lying because everything's emotional. So the answer is to, to managing that stuff is continuously learning and continuously harnessing new techniques to say, you know, Wim Hof, the Iceman, for people that don't know it, you know, if you look him up, I mean, he, he had a, a wife that killed herself. He fell into deep, deep depression. And then he turned his whole life around. And when I studied him and I was like, there's something not right here. This isn't, you know, everybody, Cambridge University studied him saying, oh, you know, he's, he's an anomaly. He's this, he's that. And he took a whole bunch of students and did exactly what he did with himself, with them and fought viruses and a whole bunch of things. So that's when I started to realize, you know, the brain, the stomach is connected. I'm in an industry where we are the worst people in the world to give nutritional advice. Never take nutritional advice for a chef because it's kind of like, taking peace advice from a soldier like, oh, yeah, they're taught about peace, but they're taught to kill. We're taught to cook. We're not taught to go, well, I hope it's healthy. Now, there's chefs, like I'm, I'm a healthy eater and I like to think my menus are that, but we're not great at being advisors on nutrition. We're great at being advisors on flavor, how to make you happy, leave you giggly, you know, and, and you know, experience sensory experiences. So I hope that answers that question. Yeah. Okay, we're going to leave part one there. Come back tomorrow when Robert reflects on the economic impact of COVID-19 on New York's restaurants and bars, the business environment, supporting staff, and how as humans we can use this period of time to grow stronger and sharpen our tools. And a whole lot more.